Hey everyone, quick announcement. Each week I try to bring you an episode to the show that offers something for everyone. It might be a training tip, insight into a world or, or national champion's life and how they got to where they are, or it might just be talking sports, the shooting sports in particular, uh, for entertainment purposes. At the bottom of each of my episodes, you will find a Koji link to my website where you can find sponsors, links to guests, things of that nature. Currently, there are three sponsors, Laser App, Gun Butter Lubrication, and now Aim Size Products. I will be putting out um, a specific episode about Aim Size and their products. But by using the links provided, you indirectly support the podcast without any additional cost to you. As a matter of fact, you typically save money by following those links. They'll give you a discount and then they'll send a little bit my way just to kind of help with the podcast. The discount link for Hoist is included. However, I don't, I don't get anything from Hoist, but I believe in their product and I feel it's a hydration product for you, which I highly recommend, especially shooting matches in the summertime where it's hot and humid. Now, if you don't use any of the products listed, there is still a way to support the podcast by using the tip button on the Koji link. It surely isn't required. None of this is required, but it is greatly appreciated. I'm trying to make the podcast as professional as possible, which does take time, a lot of time, and money. You can use the link to email me as well, whether you have suggestions for guests or whatever, comments, feedback. Regardless of whether you use a sponsor link or not, I still hope you enjoy the show. Please like it, share it, and give it a five-star rating if you're so inclined. Thanks. So Jason, why don't you take a moment and introduce yourself? Uh, yeah, so my name is Jason Clark. Uh, as you mentioned, PCC competitor. Um, you know, I like to dabble in all things USPSA, but uh, PCC is kind of my, my first love, and that's what I always default back to. So uh, that's pretty much it. I'm a 43-year-old father of two kids, got uh, a dog and a wife, live here in the Atlanta, Georgia metro area, and uh, have been shooting competitively now for, uh, gosh, let's see, I started in... Uh, 2016 2017 so what, whatever that math works out to be six six years something like that six seven years uh yeah that's the that's did, that's the basis of me did i hear you right did you say a 443 year old uh, no i have I, <laughs> I, I am 43 years old and have two kids okay i was like man you look great for 443 yeah <laughs> Uh, you know, I, 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 thanks, but like, you know, uh, as the years roll through, your body knows when you hit those milestone ages, man. So like when you get to 30, stuff starts breaking, you get to 40, more stuff starts falling apart. So, uh, uh, I feel every, every, every minute of the 43 for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm a decade ahead of you. Yeah. So I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. <laughs> That's the fun part about shooting sports is uh, when you're out there on the range and you, you know, I start complaining about being in my forties, there's always a guy there to, to shame me and say, uh, you ain't seen nothing yet. <laughs> right. Just wait. It gets better. <laughs> and, and wait, there's more. <laughs> yep. For sure. <laughs> well, John, I like to start with icebreaker questions. Yeah. I'm sure. sorry, Jason. I Jason. like to start with icebreaker questions. I don't know where John came from, but. So, with that, we're going to start with number one, which is what's your favorite movie? Favorite movie? Um, I would probably have to say The Big Lebowski. 
Oh, okay. Yeah, I'm a Lebowski fan, and uh, I, I forget which major. Some major, I think maybe Delmarva or somebody just just named all their stages after Lebowski. So I was kind of disappointed I missed out on that one. Oh but, uh, wow, interesting! Yeah, but, I didn't uh, even yeah, know that. I, I love the Walter Sobchak character that John Goodman plays. Uh, you know, it's got some '90s nostalgia in there. Well, I mean, it was made in the late '90s, but like early early '90s nostalgia, and it's just a uh, it's just a fun movie. So, like, uh, yeah, if I if I got time and it's on a streaming service, that's always a, a go to for me for sure. Big Lebowski. Nice, I like it. All right, so what I've learned is doing this podcast is not a lot of people read. If you okay, do yeah, read, I, what's your favorite yeah. book? Yeah, I don't read a lot of books. I actually do have a couple books here on my desk. Let's uh, let's see what I got here. Uh, <laughs> that's, a, that's a good one. So I got a couple. I actually just brought these from from my office. Um, this was actually a pretty good one. Top Guns Top Ten by uh, Guy Snodgrass, one of the originators of the uh, Top Gun program. He's like an F-14 aficionado, but uh, uh, just a lot of you know, it's not just about fighter pilots and stuff like that, but just like a lot of life lessons and, uh, you know, st structure of life and how, how to improve, you know, constant improvement and stuff like that. Uh, just, just a lot of cool skills, but yeah, unfortunately don't read a lot and, uh, uh, certainly don't have a lot of time for reading. If there's quiet time around here, the kids usually interrupt that. So, uh, mm. yeah, not, not, not a lot of reading. And I imagine, I don't know, do you get a lot of shooters that are big readers or that's a pretty uncommon one? No, I, they're the only thing that most of them read would be like like what you just showed like a self-improvement mm -hmm. or a mental mm -hmm. management thing but yeah. that's about it the the only ones that i've seen who have well that's not true there are some exceptions but what i have found is the ones who have read a lot are typically the former military guys who deploy okay. and then yeah. you know like myself like I haven't read a whole lot of books since I got out. I, I still have read some, yep. um, but they tend to be the ones who have read the most because there's not a whole lot else to do when you're out on deployment. So sure. I used to spend a lot of time in airplanes and stuff like that before the kids uh, traveling for work. So yeah, I definitely read a lot more back then, but uh, yeah. not, not, not so much anymore. Not so much anymore at all. Okay. And that makes perfect sense. And I, I don't know about you, but, if I'm looking at like a training book, like, 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 let's say I have a Ben Steger training book yeah. in my hand. I prefer to have the physical copy, yeah. but if I'm just going to read a book for pleasure or whatever, I actually prefer an electronic version. Okay. So I don't have, you know, I, I don't need the actual book where I have to pull it out. I'm okay with just okay. pulling it up on a tablet or a phone. Makes it quick yeah, and I, easy. Like I, 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 and I'm kind of think I would I would say I'm kind of the opposite. Like for me, having the paper mm. copy is a chance to disconnect from uh, all of the e devices and just uh, fall fall into the book a little bit. So yeah, I don't okay. actually don't think I, I don't think I have any books that are digital at all. All hard copies. Oh wow. Okay. Mm. That's very interesting. All right, number three. If you're into superheroes, who's your favorite superhero? If not, favorite historical figure? Okay, uh, I can do the superhero thing. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, I follow a lot of the Marvel stuff and, and things like that. Okay. Um, I would probably, gosh, let's see. I've never never like sat down to think of a favorite. Uh, just enjoyed them for what they are. Um, I don't know. Maybe Thor. I think. Ooh, Thor. Okay. Yeah, yeah. yeah, we haven't had Thor a whole lot, but that's a good one. No, no, I'm just trying to. Th I'm thinking of like the character arc of like, 
you know, you have a lot of like cocky arrogance on the front end and like a humbling experience. And then he kind of goes full circle. And uh, I'm also thinking of like the beer drinking Thor uh, and the later Marvel movies when he puts on a little weight. So, yeah, that totally fits me. (laughs) (laughs) When the home brewing thing started hitting, then you got Thor drinking at home. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, so Thor. Yeah, I like Thor. Okay. Favorite gun and caliber. Favorite gun and caliber. So um, I, I definitely going to say, well, I was going to default to 9mm because that's what I shoot the most of. Uh, but honestly, I think the f- favorite gun. Caliber, I'm going to say suppressed 22. Definitely the fun. Uh, uh, the, the funnest. And I, I know John Royer actually just said something along those lines uh, uh, when you spoke with him. But like in terms yeah. of which one, which one is the most favorite? Um, probably... I've got a, uh, my wife for my birthday a couple years ago got me a Tipman Arms M422. Uh, it's like an AR clone in, in 22, uh, basically mm-hmm. like a Smith & Wesson, you know, M&P 1522. Um, right. But yeah, it's uh, it's like super reliable. It's nice and like it's got some heft to it, unlike a lot of the plastic, uh, like Smith & Wesson type 22 AR style guns. So it kind of feels like a real AR when you're out there shooting it. So probably that one. Um, yeah, that's probably my favorite gun. That's interesting. So it has the same weight, but you're shooting yeah, so a much it, yeah, lighter yeah, it, caliber. Yeah. yeah, the upper and lower are, are uh, uh, you know, uh, forged aluminum, just like you'd have on a normal AR-style gun. So there's no, you know, no plastic upper, plastic lower, anything like that. Uh, it's got a pretty heavy, heavy profile barrel for, you know, considering what it is. So, like, I mean, it's not like seven or eight pounds, but it's in the realm of, you know, five, five pounds, six pounds, something like that. So it's got, got some weight to it. So obviously, obviously, it makes it a pussycat to shoot. No recoil at all. Wife loves it. Uh, um, the, the little bit that I shoot still challenge. I'll shoot that gun and still challenge uh, when, I, when I'm going to shoot some rimfire. Um, which it's not fantastic for that because it is heavy. And you know the, the rimfire guns oh. for still challenge generally need to be super light so you can swing them real fast. But it's just a fun gun to shoot. I like it a lot. You know, it's, it, I actually have a 22 insert for my AR. So I pull the bolt okay. out, put that in, comes yep. with its own little magazine. That's a nice, it's a fun way to shoot the AR without spending a, yeah. a whole lot yeah, of money I mean, on it. Yeah, if you're using it as like a, a trainer tool, having, you know, your, your same grip and stock and furniture on there makes it, uh, you know, that, that way the manual of arms is all exactly the same except for the, the bolt insert. So yeah, I, I can see that. Sure. Yeah. And I had my kids shoot it and, you know, the, the 5.56 five, kind of worried them when they were younger. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. it's nice to be able to just put that insert in and 22, they'd been shooting that. So now they were like, yeah, let's do this. And then, you know, made it more joyful for them. Yeah. But like, I'm not super caliber diverse in the household. Like I don't like to have a bunch of crazy stuff in the house. Like I got 22, obviously uh, most of my handguns are nine millimeter. I've got one 40 cal gun. I've got a Glock, was it 20, 24, the like super long slide model that uh, I'll dabble in limited occasionally. Um, Trying to think, I think that's it for for handguns. Yeah, so it's just twenty two nine and forty for handguns, and then for for long guns, it's just five five six and three oh eight. Um, so I, I'm a, 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 a practical guy when it comes to that type of stuff. Just I don't have boxes of random ammo laying around. Like, um, keep it simple. I'm very similar. The only additional caliber I have is a six five Creed. Okay, and I've looked at that numerous times. Like, I've, I've wanted a gun in that, but honestly, it's probably been two years since I've shot any of my long-range stuff, so it, it seemed like a frivolous investment. Um, 
<laughs> and most of most most of those guns I shoot pretty regularly. The 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 forty cal. I was you know I, I'm I'm not a big forty cal guy. And honestly, the only reason I got it is I had a Glock certificate from a match, and have like stacks of every other nine millimeter Glock there is. And I was like, man, what what else can I get that I might actually get some enjoyment out of? And uh, uh, got lucky and was able to pick up a limited production Glock twenty four. So uh, that's been pretty fun to shoot limited iron sights occasionally. Okay, I'm not a I don't. Glock has like 18 different numbers, so I don't even yeah. know what is the Glock 24. The 24 is it's so they have uh, like the Glock 22 is their standard full size uh, 40 cal gun. They have the 35, which is their competition version. That's like the the Glock 34 equivalent. So like it, it's a pretty prevalent okay. gun. And then the 24, I guess they still just call it a long slide, but it's even longer than the Glock 35. So it's like three quarters of an inch longer. So it's like right out, of, I think a six inch barrel or something like that. Wow. Just absolutely okay. a, a, a massive gun. Um, but it's got a, you know, the slide, the slide cutout is like even bigger than the, the Glock 35. So like it, it's slide, the reciprocating mass is similar. So um, just a fun gun to shoot. Okay. For 40. <laughs> <laughs> I've had a lot of guests lately say 40 should go away. It should. I'm not, a, I, I, I think major power factor um, doesn't really make a whole lot of sense uh, in, in the shooting sports. Uh, you know, back, back in the days when everybody was shooting 45 and then, uh, you know, nine came into play uh, and you got higher capacity. Yeah. They needed a way to try to like balance that out, I guess. So like giving them a better scoring advantage made a lot of sense, but um, now, you know, God, God, gosh, I don't, I don't know. I haven't, haven't looked at how the division split, but I, I got to say more than 80% of the sport is all nine millimeter shooting minor. Um, yeah. It's j- a just lot. from, just, ju- just from carry optics alone, you know, you look at any major yeah. match and like 70% of the shooters are all shooting carry optics. So it's definitely going to skew those numbers. Absolutely. Completely agree. Now the fifth question I typically, um, tailor to the guest. Okay. And in your case, the fifth question is really a prologue because um, you had sent me a video a while back and you told me that you actually competed in paintball before you got into the practical shooting sports. So let's talk about that. How did you get into paintball and at what age did you get into paintball? Yeah, so this all happened in high school, and I had a buddy that just like came came to school one day, and he had a paintball magazine back in you know back in the days when print magazines were were very prominent. Brought it in there, and like I played for the first time. I think I was fifteen years old, maybe, and uh, just had an absolute blast running around in the woods, shooting up my buddies, uh, and then <laughs> didn't play again for about a year because like you know the, the like rental equipment is is meant to be robust and not necessarily high performance. So like you know being a fifteen year old kid didn't have, you know, I had a job that like obviously didn't make a bunch of money, so I didn't play again for almost a year. So that I could save up and, and buy my own gear and came back and did that. And this was back when I, I was born and raised in Knoxville, Tennessee. So I played there for the very first time and then uh, moved, moved to the Atlanta, Georgia area in the late 90s. And uh, then got into the competition scene. Uh, started started playing at a, at a local local site down here. Got picked up with a team when I was, uh, I guess, maybe 17 or 18 year olds at, at that time. And started playing, re- playing regionally. Uh, to start just like in the southeast georgia alabama carolinas and then later as it progressed into the, like uh, uh 
guess around 99 to 2000, actually started traveling the country doing it. So kind of very similar to USPSA, they have a circuit where they travel around to different venues, kind of like area matches. They'll have four to five matches okay. in different parts of the country. And then they'll have their, their paintball World Cup every year in Orlando, Florida. Uh, so I did that for, mm. gosh, I can't, can't even count the number of years, but basically throughout all of my all of my 20s into my mid-late 20s, quit for a number of years when uh, got you know started dating the wife, moved in, got the house, got dragged back into playing for a little bit. Uh, so, you know, I've had two or three stints at it. And, uh, of course, during the time of me playing, it went from being a sport that was in the woods, kind of like param- paramilitary-esque to being, uh, you know, played in open fields with the inflatable barricades and like using uh, sewer pipe and stuff like that and all kinds of things to bring the sport out into the open. Made it a lot more fast paced and a more uh, just like hyper aggressive team sport. And uh, that unfortunately is also the downfall is like managing a, a team of guys to go out and do this stuff. While it's super fun to travel the country with, you know, 10 or 12 of your closest friends dealing with people that are in like different stages of life. You got the young kids that are like super eager to play, but don't have money. You got the older dudes that have family obligations, but money. So their time is, uh, is, is hard to come Limited. by and everything in between. Yeah. And then like the number of events I played in like torrential monsoon rains. And it's just like, ugh, you, you wake up in the morning to go play the event. It's raining. It rains all day. And, you know, you can't bail on that because then you're disappointing a whole team of guys, whereas competitive shooting sports, it's, uh, you know, it's fun to hang out with your dudes. But, like, if you wake up and it's raining and you don't want to go shoot, ain't nobody going to be mad at you. Right. So that's kind of, that, that was kind of kind of the segue is when I got, uh, you know, being a, a hyper-aggressive sport that's really geared towards very young men, and I was in my mid-30s at the time. Um, you know, I was kind of on the, the backside of uh, being competitive in the paintball world. Uh, so that was just kind of the segue. And shooting sports was like the next, you know, competitive venture that I, that I jumped into. Now, how lucrative can paintball, because the video you sent me was a live streaming mm-hmm. video of yep. like the world championship type thing. Yep. Yep. So how lucrative is paintball or not uh, not not exceptionally i would say it's uh, it's a very niche sport and its participation and monetary value varies tremendously based on the economy like when the economy was bad in you know 2008 2009 paintball like flatlined and like lots of people quit mm. um so it's very much tied to how the how the the general economy is doing you know people if you don't have disposable income you're not out playing paintball unless you're a you know 18 year old kid and that's that's your whole life right um I'd say it's pretty common to like how the shooting sports are. Honestly, you have people that are, you know, you got your weekend warriors that are out there dumping their wallets out to travel the country and and shoot and have fun with their friends. You've got the like uh, semi-competitive folks out there that maybe have some level of sponsorship where they're getting, you know, they're not doing it for free, but they're getting like maybe free gear, discounts on stuff from, from their particular vendors of choice. Um, you move up to like a semi-professional level, which was like the highest level that I attained and where basically like most of your gear was free. You had stipends for travel uh, and things like that. And then you have like the top level elite professionals where a lot of those guys are uh, kind of the same deal where they're, they're not coming out of pocket very much for anything. And then you have like a, a few guys that are um, not only shooting on a sponsored team, but they're also working for a manufacturer in the industry. And uh, I think that's where it ties most closely to the shooting sports. You'll have people like Shane Coley that works for Glock. You know, he works in their marketing department, shoots for Team Glock and travels around. So he, he's both, uh, you know, he, um, I don't know exactly what Shane is getting, but I presume he's getting, he's getting right. paid a base salary and his primary job is to shoot guns. Uh, so paintball is kind of very similar in that regard where the people at the top of the sport 
they're not getting rich. You know, you're not making six figures doing that kind of stuff, but you're, you're living your passion and you're getting a paycheck at the same time for doing it. Okay. I gotcha. And that makes sense. Now, do you think, um, do you think airsoft, cause airsoft came in about the same time that the economy went down right after that yeah. airsoft took off because that's what my kids got into. And that okay. was about that 2010, 2012, 2013 timeframe. It seemed yep. like airsoft exploded and that was what their world was consumed with. Yeah, I think the big advantage for airsoft is like where, where you can do it, right? Paintball generally requires a larger surface. It's noisier. Uh, it leaves a mess behind, obviously, because when the balls break, mm -hmm. it leaves goop everywhere. And that goop, it's basically like fish oil. Uh, so like when it's out there baking in the sun, it gets super, <laughs> super stinky, man. Like Does you ain't it never really? smell it. Oh yeah, you've you've never smelled stank until you smelled like paintball goop that's mixed with mud and been baking in the sun for a day. Uh, it is disgusting. But uh, yeah, I mean, because it uh, paintballs at their harder gel caps. So like all the big companies that are making like Tylenol soft gels and things like that. It's the exact same machinery that makes a paintball that makes those types of uh, medicines. So oh great, uh, yeah. So like the, you know the, the the yeah. So I mean, it's all all the same stuff. So uh, yeah. But like back back to your question about the airsoft, like I, I think airsoft can be played in a in a smaller venue for the most part. Like uh, here in the Atlanta area, at times there have been places that like had spots in in retail shopping malls where they leased out leased out a space and could do it indoors uh, and the outdoor stuff. It was never really appealing to me because like you know the big thing in paintball is like cheating. That's in any sport you push the rules and like what's a hit right. versus what's just splatter that that came off of something. And with airsoft, when that thing hits you, aside from leaving a small mark that you can't see through your shirt. Um, seemed like the ability to cheat was exceptionally high so that wasn't super interesting for me yeah for sure well and i don't you don't get the same distance with airsoft that you do with a paintball gun uh so. yes yeah, so, i mean yeah i mean obviously the mass of the projectiles uh varies i think what a, a airsoft pellet is like six millimeters and weighs just a few grams and then a paintball is yeah. like a, a 68 caliber projectile and obviously it's filled with a liquid so it's got more mass um, so yeah, you can shoot that thing a couple hundred feet without issues. Uh, whereas uh, airsoft yeah. probably ain't going so far. No, I, and I would think, and that's what, you know, I've always wondered cause I've, I've got some other friends that still do it. They're much younger than me, but, um, you know, every time I saw my kids shoot, it was like after about 20 yards. So maybe after about 60 feet, mm -hmm. I mean, or even less 50 feet. At some point, that BB starts to vary from its trajectory, from its normal path. Yeah, it's. It, I mean, and you it's don't know like where that thing is it, going. It, 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 it's going to pick up, even though those are generally, I, I presume, airsoft or, or, or just like paintball guns where they're smooth bore. Uh, so there's not like a necessarily a spin to it, but they'll pick up a spin because every, you know, all those balls and paintballs all have a seam on them. So they'll catch some extra friction in one direction or another. And as the velocity decreases and the spin maintains, yeah, it'll, it'll, zip off one way or the other that's uh that's pretty normal but um yeah man tons tons of people have transitioned from the paintball world into competitive shooting sports uh I, i've shot with several dudes at majors here lately uh tom castro used to play professional paintball uh as well so like wow. uh, it, it, it is an easy transition for dudes that are used to shooting a paintball gun to pcc especially because it's you know it's not exactly the same but a, a long gun is kind of a long gun the pr principles are similar and uh, uh, you know, the best thing for transitioning from, from paintball to, to competitive shooting sports is paintball is like basically a hundred percent target focused shooting. You're not staring at your, your, you know, there's no sight on the gun generally. And you're just looking to see where things are going, where things are at and shooting on the move is uh, a pretty common occurrence. So, 
uh, a lot of that skill set transitions and makes it easy to jump into PCC, especially. Well, and if nobody has ever watched any type of um, paintball competition, I mean, the trigger action with people and their fingers is just mm -hmm. insanely fast. So I'm yeah, sure. And, and, yeah, yeah, the twitch that, trigger movement is helpful. Yeah. yeah like, uh, you know, uh, uh, I would be surprised if Max Leo Grandis hasn't played paintball at some point or another. But uh, so like back when I started playing in the late 90s, everything was mechanical. So I was there for the birth of all these electronic uh, paintball guns where the like you know a, a typical sear mechanism was replaced by a solenoid valve that was being controlled by a micro switch and the micro switch is what was actually being pressed by the trigger so like the ability of having that super fast you know twitchy finger movement or like even a double finger movement uh yeah. that the electronics are what allowed that to really take hold and and yeah the sport went from you know dudes that were only shooting three four five six balls a second um, when I was playing at the, the height of it before they really started to rein it in, like there, there was equipment out there that could easily shoot 18 to 20 balls per second. Uh, just like, ex, you know, like exceptional wow. rates of fire, fa you know, com comparable to like full auto machine guns. Uh, and then the sports gone through various modes of like controlling that where they, they, you know, dialed it down to like 10 round, 10, 10 balls a second, 12 balls a second. Um, there's been a resurgence in the mechanical play. You got a lot of the dudes like me that used to play 15, 20 years ago that are like looking to get back into it, but they're not, you know, they're trying to figure out how they can be competitive and have fun with it again. So there's been a huge resurgence in the mechanical uh, paintball guns of like the late 90s or early 90s. Interesting. But, yeah. And I, even the video you sent me, which was, um, I think it's only like six months old now. Something it was like last that, yeah. year's world championship. Yep. Holy cow. When I was watching them, I was like, I was trying to, they didn't zoom in on them that much. So I couldn't really yeah. tell. I assumed that it was all manual. Like, I mean, they were, you know, yeah, they're, every, they're, every round was a trigger press. It, it was now, now through the years, obviously as the electronics came into play and, and you had some, some deft programmers out there that sort of cheated the system and they had what were, what was called turbo modes where it started like pull, throwing in extra shots into the mix that made it hard to catch. Um, but obviously mm. today they've, they've reined that in. They have like handheld chronographs that they're out there checking the speed of the shooters actively during the game sometimes. And, and and those chronographs can, act, can also check for the number of rounds per second so they can find violators uh, that way through their handheld chronographs. So, Well, I get it because there were a couple of those dudes that were shooting and I'm like, I mean, he might as but, well be holding an MP5. Yeah, but today, but today, most all of those shooters are are legitimately pulling the trigger uh, for wow. each and every one of those every one of those things. And uh, for mm. for background on what you're talking about, the video, the premise of our conversation was in regards to trade shows and like how abysmal it is at the top level of USPSA and other shooting sports, where you you know you'll show up to roll up to nationals and you'll have like four or five, maybe six vendors that have like a ten by ten you know, tent. And that's the extent of what they've got. Whereas with paintball, right. like all the manufacturers, like all the paint manufacturers roll up with a semi truck full of their product to sell. You know, you've got companies that set up just compounds to showcase their gear. They basically set up on-site uh, retail stores where they're selling the equipment, clothing, you name it, everything is there. And, and you know, it's, it's something where every manufacturer is participating uh, that, you know, if you're using the gear at the event, chances are your manufacturer is there showcasing their wares there to offer product support should something go wrong. And it's uh, it's uh, something that USPSA is tremendously lacking on. And if you've never played any other sports like that, you, you know, 
we just take it as yeah, it is what it is. This is this is what you get. But it's uh, it's a little shameful for a nationals event to not be supported better by the companies. Now, how many nationals have you competed in? I so my very I started shooting USPSA in 2017. Uh, 2018 was my first major, just local Georgia State match. My very first nationals was the 2020 standalone PCC match that was down at Frostproof, and then okay. the last two PCC matches. So I, I've attended three nationals events. Okay, so the last three, and I've I've also mm-hmm. been at the last three Karyopics nationals. So okay, we're we're very similar in that regard. Um, but the reason I'm asking is, do you think? So you've been to Frostproof and Talladega mm-hmm. then. Mm-hmm. Um, do you think that with the firearms situation politically that it is today, do you think we could draw, we as in the USPSA, um, enough interest from the manufacturers to do something like that? Yeah, and that's uh, honestly that's the problem where uh, you know for for let's say a company like Glock or Smith and Wesson or, or whatever big name manufacturer you want to call out, we, the competitive scene is such a small niche of of their sales that like honestly it probably isn't very attractive to them. Um, so I, I don't I don't know how you make that leap. Uh, whereas you know a, a key difference for paintball is like this this. Uh, you know, I think there's a higher percentage of, of, of buyers that are competing in the paintball world versus the shooting sports where most of your users are just, you know, they buy a gun and it sits in, sits in their safe or uh, wherever for years and years without getting touched. So, yeah, I don't, I don't know how you bridge that gap. But, I mean, honestly, it's at the end of the day, it's just it's no different than a sponsorship, right? You got to look at the dollars and, and if there's enough volume there for it to make sense for them, um, that's how it's going to happen. And, you know, hey, we could already be there and we don't know it, but people just aren't asking the right questions or, or reaching out to the right contacts to try to try to pull that off. I don't, I don't know. I don't do a lot with match administration. I'll, I'll, you know, I try to work a match or two a year, but uh, I don't, I don't match direct. I haven't dealt with sponsors in that regard to a match, but uh, you know, I, I was real pleased to see the effort that uh, I'll go back to Tom Castro. He just did the, uh, you know, he, he worked on a vendor area at the South Carolina championship uh, here in 2023 and he put together a little vendor area and he you know while it wasn't huge he had seven or eight guys on site so he had the same number of vendors at a state match that we've had at nationals and he did a cool little thing where each competitor got a card so they had a punch card and they had to go around and talk to the vendors get their card punched and when you turn that card in at the end of the match uh, that puts you uh, you basically got additional drawings for like giveaways guns gear bullets mm. stuff like that uh, so th- that was a way to offer you know, some wow. additional value to those vendors Yeah, uh, was to ensure that, you know, all right, I got 400 competitors on site, but like I talked to 20 people the whole weekend, right? So that's not very valuable to a manufacturer. But, um, you know, when you got 400 competitors on site and you're able to get 250 of them to come by and at least have a conversation and take your elevator pitch, uh, that's something that's probably far more interesting to a manufacturer. Right. So even if you only convert 5% of that, 5% of 250, you're talking 12 and a half people whereas in years past it would be zero yep so um so there's you know just like anything else there's pros and cons a lot of people are big on like staff reset half day formats but the problem with the half day format is you roll in you shoot you pack up your stuff at at lunchtime and you're gone you're not hanging out um you, you know it's also the other thing paintball does well is award ceremony at the conclusion of a major event there's actually a podium 
uh, with a microphone and announcers and, and people talking about the, the winners and give you opportunity to go up there and give a shout out to your sponsors for the people that are around. And we don't have that because we have half day formats or we have one day formats. And the number of times that the winner of the major event isn't present at the conclusion of the match is usually very high. Um, so I, I'm kind of a uh, proponent of like, even down to state level matches, it's like, all right, you, you sh make it a two day match. All right. 10 stages, 12 stages, shoot five on Saturday, five on Sunday. That way, at least everybody is present on the day the match is going to end and they can make a decision whether or not they should be around. Um, obviously that adds cost for the competitor because now you got an extra hotel night and stuff like that. So it's not a perfect solution, but, uh, it just depends what the typical competitor wants to get out of it. Are they just out there to pull triggers and have fun? Or if you're competitive and you're, you know, no matter what your class is, if you, if you win B class, you know, in, in your, your division, uh, how cool would it be to go up there and, and, you know, get your award in front of the group of people that are there. If you have sponsors, be able to have the opportunity to voice that, have the opportunity for photography to, to go in uh, the USPC magazine or website or, or whatever it may be of you up there in your, you know, wearing your, your Ricky Bobby jersey with all your logos and stuff to show off uh, whoever's supporting you. Um, we're, we're missing tons of that stuff in this sport. And I don't, I don't know all the right answers for that, but uh, we can do better for sure. Yeah, I, I agree. And I knew Tom had done some type of vendor thing. I didn't know to the extent and what he did. That, that yeah. sounds really good. I mean, that sounds yeah, like something I'll, 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 you could do at Nationals. All, all, all the yeah absolutely i mean you know we don't do i mean maybe they do raffles i don't know i haven't seen anything like that at nationals but yeah man give every competitor a punch card you got every vendor name on there they have a little you know different shape of a uh, hole puncher and you walk around and talk to the people and uh it's it's a win-win for everybody you know it, it costs uspsa the printing of the cards and buying the punchers uh the whatever giveaways you're going to do were donated prizes most likely so like very little effort required on the part of the organization to bring some value to the vendors i, I almost feel like you if you coordinated in a, in advance enough like you could reach out to whoever's going to be there and say look there's 14 vendors you know each one of you you need to have some way to punch this card that's unique to you or that and, yeah. and just leave it up to them because maybe they'll make something with their logo or you know what i mean sure yeah but uh you know those people there with tents are people that already donated prizes to the event so like why wouldn't they want to try to get a little bit more out of what they're doing yeah uh, I, I think it makes tons of sense and especially at nationals man because for nationals everybody's there multiple days so lots of opportunities and downtime to go visit all these people versus just shooting bailing going back to your hotel going to the pool or whatever you did at your rental house um you know, drive some value for these vendors to be there. Yeah, totally agree. The other, the other thing um, that the other reason that came up was live streaming. Mm -hmm. And that yep. that started the yeah, conversation. Yeah, and I know USB, USB done. Yeah, they've done a little bit of live streaming, but it's like basically a stationary camera that's just sitting there and like. Uh, if you're in the sport, great. Maybe you know what's going on. Uh, but like e even mid-level or new competitors that maybe you're checking it out for the first time, all they see is a guy running around and they see some targets and they have no idea what's happening. Uh, so, you know, ha having some sort of commentation, uh, you know, having some rhyme or reason to like what you're doing. Like, you know, I don't want to say just follow the super squad because like, yeah, that's interesting. But like it needs to be something cool for everybody that's there participating. But um yeah, so, something that's giving some live insight as to what's actually happening 
at the match versus just a random, you know, we'll set up on this stage for 10 minutes, this stage for 20 minutes, you know, whatever the case is. Yeah. Do you think that um, now based on what you're used to with air, um, I almost said airsoft paintball, do you think, and, and now you, you've been competing long enough in USPSA, do you think it could be successful? Is the sport set up in such a way that like when you watch paintball, you see the entire field and then they'll mm-hmm. have, you know, basically three cameras, one from the side where you can see the entire yeah. field. Yep. And then one on each, we'll call it end zone, where the teams start, yep. so you can see their perspective looking down. Do you think, yep. with the way our sport is, that it could be successful live stream, successfully live streamed? Yeah, I think so. But I mean, you you, you got to pay somebody that knows what they're doing to do it, right? We we did it like with the lowest possible effort. We've set up one camera that's connected to the internet and boom, it live streams. But yeah, you need somebody that can like switch back and forth between the feeds of like, you know, something that's behind the shooter, something from a side profile, like you said, maybe even drone footage where it's showing overhead views. Um, you know, there's all sorts of possibilities there, but like it, 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 it to be successful, it's going to require some investment and some, some, some company or person like Josh Froelich has been doing a lot of uh, fantastic, uh, footage, uh, at these matches that uh, yeah. can ha- have a, a, a AV person on the fly that knows what they're doing and run this thing and, and like switch it back and forth between shots, have somebody that's knowledgeable talking about what's happening, um, you know, you're not gonna be able to do like live scoring, but like, you know, a brief rundown of the scoring perhaps because, you know, when the competitor's done within 20 or 30 seconds of uh, the last bullet pulled, generally you've got a, a score on the tablet. Uh, even today, a lot of that stuff is happening live, uh, you know, with immediate uploads to practice score so people can view the results on practice score competitor and things like that. So uh, there's lots of possibilities, I think, uh, of how to pull that off, but it requires investment. Well, and and I do feel like um, they could do live scoring in that by using the practice score competitor app, something like that. You could still put people, like even if it's just day one, so some people are are maybe done shooting or you know how everybody starts on a different um, stage, so it's not equal per se. Yeah. But at the end of the day, you can still say, well, right now, Max Michelle is in the lead because he can still gain the most number of points of any competitor. So you could do it that way. Right. Yeah, you got you got to use that high available tab in the competitor. Exactly. App, but but it, you know, there's trickery to that, right? To to your point is like <laughs> Yeah, you get, you know, you get people that maybe they shot the match, uh, you know, they they shot a Friday staff day where it was all day. So all their points are in. So they're showing up the top. But yeah, the max potential is important. But it's also hard to understand for the average person of like, that number means that they win every remaining stage and take every remaining point. So they are going to drop and it's hard for people to visualize and understand how much you are going to drop you know, as the match progresses. And, and honestly, there's, there's no way to know for sure. You could look at, you know, let's say a three day match and somebody shot two days and you can go, all right, well, they've, they, you know, they've won 85% of the points thus far. So you could apply that across the, the board of the remaining stages they haven't shot. And that'll give you a nice like baseline, but they're going to have good stages and bad stages. And, and it's not a perfect system, but it's, it's enough to give you a good baseline. And it is better when you have people that have, where nobody but perhaps staff has completed the match prior to the conclusion. The high available works better in that regard uh, versus when you have somebody that finishes the match before everybody else. 
Yeah, and I think someone had made uh, when I put out the survey, someone had made the suggestion to do like a sports center thing at the end of each day. And that's where I think it would be really interesting at the end of day two. So you're going into the final day and then you can really talk about the what ifs like right now, so-and-so could win the match because they have the most points still to gain um, the high available. And I think that would really add a very dramatic impact to that. Oh yeah. Oh, the social episode. media posts would be would be tremendous and get a lot of value, uh, a lot of traction of, of, of that. Yeah, sort of a daily debrief of nationals or, or whatever event uh, it happens to be. Uh, you know, the stats guys working these matches, they have enough insight to kind of understand what's going to happen. Plus, you know, that's kind of the purpose of the shoot, the super squad is like chances are your top 10 guys. Most of them are going to be on that squad. There will be, you know, potentially a few outliers, people that – uh, didn't make the super squad because of whatever reason, because like, you know, super squad basically is like a, a favorites race. It's no longer like, all right, you place top 10, you're automatically in like chances are you are, but uh, it's not a defined process. So like if the powers that be don't like somebody, they're not on the super squad. Uh, and then you have people that just don't want to be on the super squad because they want to go shoot with their friends and have fun. And, and, you know, ultimately that's kind of what the sport's all about. Uh, that's a whole nother discussion right there of like forcing top level competitors to be on the super squad versus not, um, you know, I, I think uh, there's a simple way of solving that is like, all right, well, you're super squad. Well, you, you don't pay for your match. Your match is free and we're, we're going to tell you what to do. You got to be on the super squad. But like, it's hard to tell Ooh. somebody that pay, paid for their match or had a sponsor cover a slot that you're going to do what we said, because, you know, like you're, you're no longer a customer. We're, we're telling you what to do. Um, but, Interesting. Yeah, I like that. And and you're right. That might that might be enough to sway some of those people to be on the super squad versus shooting with their friends or whatever. Yeah. So, um, shoot, I had I had a I had a comment, but it's it's gone. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it so it is what it is. Yeah. Oh, okay. I, I remember now what it was. And the other thing I think too, with by doing some type of live streaming thing or, or, you know, even if it's uh, something at the end of the day, say an hour long session, you know, mm-hmm. uh, a couple of things that I had was you could, you could take the CRO from each stage where the stage is empty. You can record them walking you through the stage and giving mm-hmm. the, you know, the high points of, of what the challenges are and stuff like that. But it also gives you an opportunity for, you know, 15 second ads for all of the vendors at different places throughout the video. So even people who are just going to see this on the internet because they heard about it. Now these vendors are still being seen by these folks, you know, the 50,000 people who watch the video, they're all going to see these 15 second videos. These like, these like CR walkthroughs, these are happening during the match or after the match is over. You're, you're thinking daily type thing. Well, no. What it, so what I'm saying is, I think one of the like one of the things I was trying to figure out was, I was like, all right, I would want some number one. I, I in my mind, I'm like, I was trying to get there with a media badge. Mm-hmm. Uh, I I applied back in early March. I still haven't heard a thing. So for me, that that's over. It's done. I'm not. Yeah. It's too late in the game. Um, and that's another conversation because I feel like. They're trying to control the the streaming ability and the narrative of the match as well, amongst other things that sure. you know it's been going on. Um, yep. But 
so again, like if you're not in with them, then you're not going to get that access. And that's how I sure, feel sure. where I'm at. So, but anyway, drone footage of an empty stage. Mm -hmm. And then you have the CRO of that stage walking you through it, explaining, you know, the start position, how many rounds, um, the activators and showing the activator sequence on an empty yeah. stage. That's cool. And you record all of that. And then each day, you know, you can say, okay, everybody's starting today. Here are the stages. You know, this is how they work. Yeah. And you can break it up. I, it's a cool concept. I think the, the potential risk is for competitor equity, right? You have somebody that's already shot that stage and then somebody comes through and they're shooting it the next day and they get the opportunity to get this uh, video footage. Uh, I think that's something that, that needs some attention. Uh, just so other competitors aren't getting some insight that that prior shooters maybe didn't get, but I, I think for like a, a match wrap up video or like an all you know like you know you, you mentioned like I think the the content of a like an hour, but like I, I think like a match conclusion video that shows the highlight reels and maybe set, has some stuff like you're talking about, and then like a, a run through of the final scores of like the top competitors and like how they were able to achieve that by winning stages or, or, you know, whatever the case may be. Um, I think that would be great for an end of match. I think it's a little tricky to manage the competitive equity trying to do it during a multi-day match. So do you think, like, I'm only talking nationals, okay? Do you yeah, think yeah. still, if it's not until the end of day one, people get there a day earlier and walk all the stages? Yeah. And sometimes, like, like me, I've seen the ROs shooting the match on that yep. day so i've been able to see this and then they have you know if they shoot in the afternoon they have all morning to come and watch the stages and yep. people's instagram posts um and then you know for the people shooting in the morning they have all afternoon to still go and watch people shoot other yeah. stages so do you think at that point at the end of day one that it even matters I think it, I honestly, I think it does because if you're following the super squad, like watching a, an RO shoot on staff day or watching, you know, Joe, Joe, Joe competitor shoot it on the first day. Uh, I, I think that's a different level of information than you get by having, then having a, a video of a super squad shooter running through it and an RO that's watched hundreds of competitors go through and talk about the individual challenges of the stage. I think, I think there's a different level of information there personally. Uh, and me as a competitor, I, I, I would certainly watch something like that at the end of day one on stages I haven't shot and try to try to find a new nugget of information, perhaps of something that I missed. Um, I, I, your, your point is valid. Everyone gets different levels of information at the match, but depending upon how early right. they got to the match, how much stage walking time they got. But, that, you know, that's something that could be controlled. Um by do, you know, doing it more along the lines of how IPSC does stuff where you don't get a chance to, to be on the base before. That doesn't limit watching people, but um, I don't know. I'm a big fan of competitive equity and what, you know, how, however that looks, whether that is uh, just you know, do, doing the best to make sure everybody gets the, you know, you can't control the weather, but like that's the reason why, you know, one of the reasons why something like a super squad exists because when you have 10 guys that are all gunning for the top spot and all have a valid chance at it, it's important that they're all exposed to the same type of stuff, whether that's weather, whether that's sun angle, uh, whether that's how, you know, what, whatever variable you want to look at. Um, anybody that has a chance to win, I think it's important that they get as close to the same match as their fellow competitor. 
It's not to say that everybody else Valid point. Should, should, shouldn't get that, but like, you know, even if you want to break it up by classes, because ultimately that's what we're shooting. We're shooting to win a division and then we're shooting to win our class if you're not going to win the match, right? So like if every master class shooter has the same presentation, every A class shooter has the same presentation, to me that is competitive equity. Now that's troublesome when you have self-squatting and people can jump on with whoever they want. It's hard to manage, but where we can control it is all the way at the top with super squads and, and things of that nature. All right, valid point. Yeah. All right, now, so as a teen, you got into paintball. You kept going. You yep. kept doing that up into your mid thirties. At what point did you shoot a, your a gun? It's a great question. So, like, so on it. So, actually, back to paintball. I played from like fifteen to sixteen, and I quit for the first time around twenty six or something like that. Was out for a couple years and came back in my early 30s. Um, I did not fire a handgun uh, for the first time until 2010. So what was that 12, 12, 12, 13 years ago? Uh, so that's a relatively new thing for me. I had a buddy at work who was uh, kind of into the self-defense thing, and he's just like, "Hey man, you want to go to the range on Saturday and shoot shoot some guns?" Uh, and I was like, yeah, like, you know, I, I, obviously I'd been exposed to guns. I was born and raised in Knoxville, Tennessee, but I did live in the city, right? So like, I couldn't just like walk out in the backyard and shoot guns. I, you know, I, I'm certain I fired a hunting rifle or something like that from an uncle or, or my dad or whoever, like when I was a kid, but didn't really do guns at all until 2010. Not that I was averse to guns. I just wasn't exposed to them, especially handguns and just, uh, um, wasn't something that I did. But like once, once, uh, my buddy took me out. Shot a gun for the first time. I, I went out and bought my first gun a week later. Uh, did the square range thing where, you know, I just go to the range two, three, four times a month, stand on the range, punch out the center of a bullseye target. It's like, all right, cool, gun still works and I can still hit a target, great. Uh, and then uh, the same buddy, uh, this was, uh, gosh, I guess three, four, five years later. So I think 2015 was my very first match ever. And it was like a, it was a derivative of IDPA. Um, Went out and shot a handgun uh, in that match. Had a blast. It kind of sparked that competitiveness that I'd been missing from the paintball thing for a while. Um, the buddies that I started shooting with, they kind of shot a handful, two, three, four more matches, and they were done. And then I just, it took off for me. I, I shot uh, probably three or four matches a month doing that uh, locally. And then, uh, yeah, it was it was all done deal from there, man. So it's... Uh, you, you talk about guys when they get into their 30s and 40s, their their personality focuses around barbecue, their lawn, a car, a boat, something like that. And for me, it's guns now. Yeah. All right. Two questions. One, you only have one one chance to get this right. You're from okay. Knoxville. Yeah. Best pizza ever is from where? Uh, best pizza ever. Uh, Louis is a spot that I love. Oh, you didn't go to Big Ed's? Uh, you know what? So, all right. So, yes, Big Ed's is fantastic. Actually, I just went there last year for uh, when I was there for the Atomic Blast. There's one in Oak Ridge. But uh, Louie's yes. is like a super old one. And it was it was and I say that because it was like by the neighborhood I grew up in in Knoxville. So that was the spot I went to with my family. But yes, Big Ed's is fantastic. Uh, and I like I said, I just went there with actually with, with wrong side, Jason with Brass Monkey Bullets. <laughs> we, uh, we we all everybody that was there shooting with his team. We all went out to dinner at Big Ed's in Oak Ridge, Tennessee. Uh, last year and it was it was phenomenal it was really good stuff there's a whole lot of shooting sports pictures on yep. those walls are there I, I didn't pay that much attention but uh because I, I think i had i just shot the match what? I if I'd shot, yeah i just finished shooting the match i mean we were just sitting there we, we were all just like engaged in conversation with each other so like we were in our own world the whole time we were in there but all right so you got to make a trip back 
and you've got to look around the yeah. walls. We'll check it out. Jason, I, I ate there before you were born. Okay. So I have been going, I can't say that. Back in the late 70s, mid to late 70s, okay. um, my dad was, so I spent some time on the, there, there it is, right there behind me, <laughs> on the Marine Corps rifle team. Well, yeah. in the 70s into the early 80s, he was the head coach of that team. And every year, uh, they would go to Oak Ridge to shoot a match because they have a, okay. a, a long-range um, range there. And the Army marksmanship team would be there. Everybody would show up. Like, it was a big match every year. And at the end of the match, everybody went to Big Ed's. The okay. Army team was there. The Marine Corps team was there. Everybody went there. Yeah. So a lot of the memorabilia on that wall is starting in the 70s. ESPN even has stuff on yeah. the walls at Big okay. Ed's Pizza. Very cool. I'll definitely yeah, check that out next you time. you got to go and take it in. Won't be this year, though, because that match is uh, not in East Tennessee anymore. They moved it out like west of Nashville area. So uh, we'll probably be back to that area this year. But uh, we'll definitely check it out next time I'm in the area. Okay. All right. So I, I know that paintball can get expensive because mm -hmm. there's a lot of different stuff. Mm-hmm. So is practical shooting still more expensive than paintball? Uh, I think it depends on your level of uh, involvement. Uh, okay. On, you know, and, and when you're doing it in life, right? Because like when I started, when I was in my teens for paintball, it seemed outrageously expensive. A paintball gun could easily be over $1,000 for like a top level model. Uh, paintballs themselves, like when I first started playing, it was like, probably 120 bucks for a thousand paintballs that's come down you know paintballs have gotten way less expensive because the margin of those things are just outrageous but like maybe it's 50 60 70 bucks these days uh, for that type of stuff um i don't think you practice to the same extent uh with paintball that you maybe can, can do with handguns because like probably handguns not. you can go out and work you can go out and work individually on stuff whereas with paintball you're bait, you know, you can do some individual stuff, but it's mostly a team focused sport, right? It's all like communication and, and I, I'd say tactics, but tactics, you know, coordinated movements yeah. and things yeah, like that. Absolutely. Um, but uh, yeah, at this point, man, I, I would, in terms of like how much paintball gear I've ever owned versus how many firearms I've owned, there's no comparison. Firearms are way more expensive. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Basically just because I got in even deeper, right? Like, you know, being, being, um, you know, like for PCCs, like I've got three or four PCCs right now, right? Obviously, I can only shoot one at a time, but I've got them, you know, got some that are purpose tasked for USPSA versus Steel Challenge, backup gun, backup of a backup gun. Not, not that I've ever needed them because the Da Vinci's never broken, knock on wood. But, uh, you know, uh, yeah, I've got, I've got way more guns and bullets in the house right now than I ever had for paintball gear, for sure. Now, did you we've talked a little bit about it earlier, but specifically for you, um, what do you think from paintball helped you the most going into practical shooting? The, the big thing is like the, the movement aspect because paintball is a sport where you don't spend a lot of time in one spot. And if you do, it's kind of in like an austere position, you're kneeling, squatting, something like that. And you have to be at, the, at a moment's notice able, able to jump and run to the next spot. So it's not like, it's not marathon running, it's sprint running. So that's obviously exactly how USPSC is, is spot, spot, spot. 
and then that target focus shooting it was a huge thing now obviously back in back when i first started shooting using iron sights uh, you know there, there's a time and a place for target focus shooting with iron sights but uh when i got to the dot game of shooting carry optics and, and pcc 100% the way to go where my eyes are always focused on either where I'm going or what I'm shooting and it's never on the gun or on the reticle of the, the optics. So uh, I'd say those are definitely the two big things. It's just that uh, the quick spot to spot movement and then target focus shooting. So you never had to worry about staring at a sight or a dot because you were so accustomed to not. <laughs> exactly the opposite, I would say. I would like shoot a stage back in the early days of my shooting and be like, man, I didn't see my sights one time. <laughs> 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 I say that now. <laughs> right. I mean, that, that, that's actually a huge problem a lot of people have. But like, uh, you know, you get, you get to a point where that kind of just starts working for you. And it's not that I'm not seeing the sight. It's just that it's happening so subconsciously that it's just, uh, you know, it's just a part of me now. Um, but no, I mean, I would say the biggest hurdle of that transition was like knowing when to throttle that back and like let mm. sights actually settle and, uh, get a good second look at a target or something like that. So while it's the greatest benefit, it's also the greatest harm. <laughs> the, yeah. Per I mean, se. it's, it's it's like the, you know the normal progression in this sport. It's like, you, you're never going to get faster just by shooting alphas, but like, you can get more accurate while you're out there running around like a wild man, right? Like you can make a breakthrough that way. Not necessarily, you're not going to get ever faster by just standing and shooting alphas. Um, so like it, it all comes down to just visual acuity. Like you, you see, you know, you can only shoot what you can see and you just learn to see stuff faster uh, is how that goes. Yeah, absolutely. So now what division did you start in? So my very first you. USPSA match ever was carry optics 10 back when it was a provisional sport. Um, that one of the, one of the, re, you know, one of the reasons so I, I, I got into electronic dots early uh, in, you know, like mid, mid 2010, like 2014, 15, whatever, like before the Glock MOS ever existed, I was getting guns cut for, for optics. And unfortunately Ooh. the sport that I started shooting in GADPA was, like I said, it was a breakaway sport from IDPA where they actually cleaned up the rule set a lot, made it a faster sport and made a lot more sense. But they, they weren't very adaptive to, to equipment modifications of the day. So, like, when I wanted to shoot a, basically a stock Glock 19 with a dot on it, that put me in their open division. So I could be up against, like, legitimate open guns with 170-millimeter mags and compensators and stuff like mm. that. So that wasn't very fun, obviously, from a competitive equity because, like, you know, I, I want to measure myself against people that are shooting my division and uh you know when you're if you don't know the person you don't know what gun they're shooting it's like when you're just looking at the scorecard after a match unless you know the person you don't know if they were shooting a, a glock 19 with a dot or if they were shooting a race gun you know um so that's kind of what drove me over to uspsa was like their rule set made more sense in terms of equipment divisions and it was a national thing so like gadpa had a or they had a ranking system but it was all just it was georgia focused so it was all people that were local i mean there were several hundred competitors that participated but at the end of the day it was a much smaller measurement of oneself uh so the ability of like a national classification system and then divisions that uh, i thought at the time made more sense uh were a lot more fitting now with that said carry optics 10 was terrible in my opinion like i didn't even have enough mag pouches like uh, competitive mag pouches like blade tech pouches or whatever i was using at the time like i literally had to go to my truck and grab every like kydex conceal carry mag pouch that i had and slap it on my belt to be able to you know because you got to have at least five mags for a, a 10 round type division right so all those mag changes weren't super fun at least it's a new competitor because i was so uh you know trying trying to like figure out what to do in this new sport that like 
basically all my focus was on, all right, every time I move, I've got to change a mag. Um, and I think that's why a lot of new shooters, when they come into USPSA, why you like drive them into limited minor because you shoot your gun at capacity and your focus is on shooting the stage versus like managing your gun. Uh, so carry optics Tim was my very first thing. I shot it only one time. I enjoyed the USPSA, but again, kind of didn't shoot it again for like another year or so. Uh, I had made the transition into shooting a lot of carbine during that time. I'd always enjoyed shooting rifles, but didn't really have a good competitive outlet for it. Uh, the GADPA sport, like if they had a fifth, fifth match day of the year, they would do like some special division, whether it was like carry gun only, they would do some with a, you know, bring your AR in and we'll run it that way as well. And I found that I really enjoyed shooting the AR, uh, but like outside of three gun, there was not a lot of places to like running gun with a, with the five, five, six carbine. Uh, that's how I kind of found PCC originally. Um, I, uh, my very first PCC was actually a CZ Scorpion when that thing was debuted at uh, SHOT Show, what, whatever year, I think it was 2015. Like I saw that thing. I was like, oh, wow, that's super cool. I got to have that. So bought it, shot it 20 minutes after I got back from the range. I was on the ATF's website, filing a form one to put a stock on that thing. And, and that was kind of the end of it. So that CZ Scorpion SBR is actually what I shot for the first couple of years in PCC and USPSA. And then uh, had a had a local local guy was like, dude, he's like, you're pretty good at this. You should come out and shoot a major match. And that's exactly what I did. I went out and shot Georgia State in 2018 after you know about a year of doing this stuff. And that that was the end of it, man. I was hooked. Like so, I, I said I was just going to do this for fun. It was going to be a weekend thing, and it's turned into like now I'm traveling the country, shooting major matches all the time, and it's been loads of fun. Now, when you picked up PCC. How long did it take you to make GM? Uh, so I think my initial classification obviously happened my very uh, before my first major. So that happened in 2018. <clears throat> I classed A initially uh, when I first started. I made master in 2019 and then made GM in 2021. So it was kind of like a two-year step between the, the divisions for me. Okay. One of, one of right. those bumps, like the, the A to M bump probably had more to do with gear than anything because during that time I switched from the CZ Scorpion, which while it's a fun gun to shoot, it doesn't have the splits of an AR type platform um, because it's meant to be a full auto machine gun. It's got a really heavy bolt and the bolt speed is kind of coordinated mm. by that. Uh, okay. So going from, from that platform into like a normal AR9 platform helped tremendously with the A to M move and then... The GM move, you know, I, I never really had a, you know, obviously everybody has a goal of being a GM, but I wasn't out there like actively doing stuff to try to make GM. I was just, all right, as I shoot, as I learn the sport and I get better at shooting the sport, my classifiers are just going to natural, excuse me, naturally go up over time. And that's exactly what happened. Okay. Now let's go back for just a second. GADPA, what yeah. Georgia, what defensive Georgia Defensive Pistol Association, I guess, or whatever, basically okay. whatever the IDPA acronym is, but replace international with Georgia. Okay. I have to check that out. Well, I that was, league is I now, they are now defunct and have they have rolled back into IDPA. So like it basically happened, there was a Georgia State Championship before I ever started shooting competition, competitions. They had some kind of falling out with the organization. So they said, all right, screw you guys, we're going to do our own thing. So they kind of built their own sport. And one, one of the big things they did, they had a modified target. So like it had like a, a smaller A zone in the chest and it had like a spinal mm. column that was also an A. And then they did half second down penalties versus the full one second. So it made it a, a speedier sport, um, which is right. why, people I, why, I, why, 
which is why I like that and, and IDPA less because, you know, ultimately you need speed and accuracy. And IDPA, it feels like, uh, obviously at the very top, you got speed and accuracy, but like your average weekend competitor in IDPA, the focus is way more on just accuracy and they're out there moving around at a snail's pace, picking up zeros, you know? Yeah, I, I enjoy shooting IDPA, but my biggest issue with them is in real life, people don't stand still. You know, <laughs> right. you're going to be moving. So right. why you're can't moving, gonna... why can't I engage moving from one place to another? You know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. So that's, yeah, that's what, okay. Not... It, it's Go meant ahead. to be a defense. It's meant to be a defensive sport, but yeah, they want to control every action that you do, and that's just not how defensive encounters work. Like, you know, I'm going to reload my gun when I want to reload my gun. I'm going to move when I need to move. I'm going to shoot on yeah. the move when I need to move. I'm going to shoot targets in the order that makes the most sense to me, not just based on slicing a pie or nearest to furthest. Which I understand they had to create a rule set, and that 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 is a logical way to go about that. But like. If you pick up a PE because you shoot a target that made more more visual sense to you, like that's exactly what you would do in a defensive situation anyway. So like, why would that be a penalty? Right. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. I, yeah. I mean, I get it. You don't want people standing in in the middle of an open space yeah. and just shooting yeah. at targets. Okay. Yeah. Then give them give them a penalty if they stop and engage. Well, but so that, let, that was one. That, that was one thing Gadpa did is they had like uh, for indoor matches. Uh, specifically is they had like they would use tape for their fault line so they would use red tape and that was a hard stop where you had to shoot from a position of cover and they would use yellow okay. tape that was like uh, an option so like you could shoot from the position of cover or if you cross the old line you had to shoot every target moving uh while you were in that open space i like it so the sport made it made a lot of sense it really did okay yeah i like that 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 does make more sense they did that. I think it would be much. I think a lot of USPSA shooters would be more willing to shoot it yep. because then you would cut down the time just by yep. giving that opportunity. Yep. I, I really like that sport. Like I said, the only reason I got out is I was looking for a larger measure of myself and national was a way to do that. And then equipment divisions kind of drove me out. Now today, IDPA has fixed everything uh, for the most part. Their carry optics, optics division makes more sense than in USPSA's. You know, they do PCC now, which I never thought I'd see the day that the IDPA was doing that sort of stuff. But, uh, uh, you know, at this point, the sports have pros and cons for sure, one way or the other. I've shot one IDPA match this year, and that's when I went and got my classification. I'm planning on shooting the Georgia State Championship this summer. And uh, that will really be all the IDPA that I plan to shoot. But, uh, yeah, I had fun. Okay. All right. So I have a few more questions talking about PCC stuff. Yeah. Um, what What are your thoughts on PCC length shots in matches? And by that I mean beyond your standard twenty five to thirty five yard yeah. pistol shooting. Yeah, I know this this mindset exists in the in the in the the brains of lots of match directors. They're like, all right, you're shooting a carbine, so we should be shooting at eighty yards, hundred yards, and beyond. Um, personally, I don't feel that that is the sport of PCC. For me, it's more like okay. a QCB type shooting. So it's meant to be fast and it's meant to be accurate. And honestly, if we just want to talk about ballistics, you know, I'm shooting a, yeah, it's a, it's a 14 and a half inch barrel, but I'm shooting the same 130 power factor that a carry optic shooter is shooting. Um, so my bullet drop and velocity loss is going to be comparable to that same handgun, right? Uh, an open gun is better equipped to shoot a hundred yard shot than my carbine simply because of the velocity. If they're shooting open, my uh, open major, 
uh, you know, the ballistics of their projectile are far better suited for that, even though they don't have a shoulder stock. Um, so, yeah, so like the, the first PCC Nationals I shot was at Frostproof that Shan Smith was a match director for that. So he had some of that crazy stuff. There was like 65-yard paper targets. There was a 45-yard popper that activated a swinger that was at 50 yards. Um, I, I, I just don't feel that, that you know, like if you're shooting five five six guns, I think that makes a lot of sense. But shooting a pistol caliber carbine, it's just not the sport. Uh, you know, you, you look across divisions, the goal is to be fast and accurate, right? PCCs can definitely do that. But what, what differentiates a top-level PCC competitor from, uh, you know, s some mid-level guy is is not necessarily the shooting. Everybody can punch out alphas, right? That's, that's, not, that's not a challenge in really any division for the most part. It comes down to the speed and gun handling. Running around a stage with a with a 45-ounce handgun versus a 7-pound rifle that's, you know, 30, 32 inches long, that's the challenge for me. There are some stages that... Um, it's not a problem at all. You have, you know, big open field courses. Maybe for PCC, it presents some opportunity for like some longer distance shots. Maybe a handgun guy, especially an iron sight shooter, wouldn't do a 40-yard cross base shot. But maybe for a PCC, it makes sense. Uh, but for me, shooting the same stages that pistol shooters are doing, but doing doing it with a rifle, whether that's a pro or a con, is, is the challenge for me. Tight quarters, shooting it, uh, you know, hard left leans. Uh, port shooting stuff like that Th those are things that are that are definitely advantageous to having a handgun and that's where the pcc challenge comes for me is shooting from these more difficult positions with the carbine okay and, and so running and that is running, a... run, yeah so running gun nothing beyond 30 35 yards uh do whatever target difficulty you like hardcover no shoots swingers movers drop turners that that stuff's all cool but the challenge of the sport should be the same no matter what the division is. Uh, and you're just going to go at different speeds and different levels of accuracy based on your division, whether it's irons or optics, whether it's open or PCC, that, that's where you're going to see the differentiation. Okay. And, that, and that's a good answer. You know, I, I don't shoot PCC, but I have stated publicly that I'd like to see not only the shooter, but the platform be challenged. But I mean, maybe yep. I need to rethink my position because I don't shoot it. And that was a very well thought out answer. So Ch the I'm challenge. Uh, so like a, a great example of this is we have uh, Cardi B that just joined the Da Vinci team. He was a carry optics GM shot with the Marine, I believe the Marine Corps team and phenomenal, yeah. phenomenal shooter. He's picked up the PCC. He's adapted to it very quickly, but he has some challenges, right? And, and it all comes down to running the carbine in those specific environments. And, and this is, uh, again, if we're just standing and shooting at a stationary target, even if we're shooting a 60-yard build drill, I think most shooters can do that within a relatively small margin of each other. But when you're out there running around with the rifle in those environments, that's where the differentiation occurs. Uh, dist you know, distant shooting is all tied down to velocity and ballistics, and the PCC just, just isn't meant for that. You know, you're, no nobody's shooting an MP5 competitively at 100 yards and the sport is you know it's not built around sbrs and stuff like that but you do have people that are shooting sbrs in uh you know in in pcc uh so because you have dudes that are maybe shooting only a four or five inch sbr gun and you have dudes that are shooting 16 inch guns like yeah the velocity difference uh may be negligible because they're custom loading for the gun for power factor but uh, you know the ballistics the spin of the bullet like all that stuff comes into play when you get out to those kinds of distances Sure. So, all right. Well, and, and that brings up the next question because you had posted something on your Instagram 
that I thought was interesting. Um, okay. So this is a two-part question. I'll go ahead and transition the picture on now. But at what distance yeah. do you... There you go. At what distance yeah, do you one. zero your PCC? That's first. Yeah, so my... Yeah, so my, my PCC standard zero is at 25 yards, uh, give or take. Uh, you know, it could be 23, 25. There's not a, not a huge difference in the, in the distances that we shoot. But, uh, yeah, this, this particular image I posted some time ago, uh, and this was when well, I started one shooting. One second, Jason. One second. Let, uh, for the people listening, yep. that he posted on Instagram of three USPSA targets side by side and his reticle superimposed on it, at seven yards, 15 yards, and 25 yards. So you see where the reticle sits on the target at different ranges. Go ahead. I'm sorry. No, no problem. Uh, so yeah, so this this is just something I visually realized while out shooting uh, as I moved to a new optic. Uh, so I started, I started shooting the holographic sights here, uh, gosh, about two or three years ago. And uh, I noted that with the EOTech, specifically the one that has the circle dot reticle, or donut of death as it's called, that a lot of the common distances that we shoot, you know, call, call it seven, seven yards to 25 yards. So at seven yards, that, that 65 MOA circle basically mathematically covers the A zone edge to edge. It does the same thing with the C zone at approximately 15 yards, and it covers the width of a USPSA target at approximately 25 yards. Um, now, how you use this to aim. Now, obviously I'm still using the center dot most of the time to do that aiming, but what it gives me is as I'm transitioning between targets, I'm gonna see that 65 MOA circle come onto the target before the dot. And that gives me an earlier visual cue that it's almost time to shoot versus a dot that's just kind of floating out in space approaching the target. Um, another interesting thing with these circle dot reticles is for close in shooting. If you have approximately a 20, let's just call it a 25 yard zero. Well, if you're shooting a five yard target, you've got to contend with that mechanical height over bore offset between the actual yes. bullet leaving your barrel and where the center line of your optic is. Well, the, the EOTech and, and actually the optic I'm using now, the Vortex, uh, Razor, UH1, Huey, whatever they call it, it's got too many names. The bottom of the circle, or in the case of the <laughs> Huey, they've actually put like a little triangle at the bottom instead of just the vertical hash mark they put a triangle but that's like a, a cqb hold point for the carbine mm. so that raises it up you know your typical hike over bore offsets like two and a half inches two and three quarters something like that on a normal ar platform it is point of impact at five to seven yards so instead of having to hold my dot off the top of the the head box to get an a i put that hash mark on the eotech or the top of the triangle on the vortex razor right where I want to hit. And that is where it hits. Very so interesting. These, these types of reticles are helpful both for transitions where you see the, the big circle coming onto the cardboard before you get there. And then also it's kind of a cheat for close in targets. So if you want to have that, that 25, 30 yard, whatever zero distance you have, it negates having to do a, a mental offset when you're holding on the target, you just put the bottom of the reticle right where you want to hit and it hits. So what is your bore and sight height? Do you know? What is that offset? So the, 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 the Vortex Razor now is a, what's called a lower one-third height. I don't know the number exactly off the top of my head. I think it's in the ballpark of like 2.75 2 inches or something like that. Uh, I'd have to have to check it. Um, but, uh, you know, it, it's it, carbine shooters know to do this, right? They, they know how to off of a target like that when it's super close but it's something that you have to think about and yes. for newer shooters especially like 
Things that you have to think about equals going slow. Being able to do things subconsciously means you get to go faster. And this, this type of reticle is just helpful for that. Um, for people that I've let shoot my gun or just look through the reticle, the common complaint is, oh, that's just too busy. I, I you know, it's going to be distracting for me. And my retort to that would be like, yeah, of course, like there's more going on here, but uh, this is basically a visual cue for you that you're looking at the reticle and not looking at the target. Because when you're target focused, yes. you're looking through, you're, you're looking through the reticle and you don't, honestly, you don't, you just don't notice it. It's just there. It's part of the background image. Um, so for, for people that are, are maybe trying to transition to a more target focused shooting, like even if it's a handgun, you know, hollow sun does a lot of these reticles now where they have the circle dot. It's kind of mm -hmm. the same thing. Like if you're, if you're actively noticing that there's more than just a dot, that means you're looking at your reticle and you're not looking at the target as you should be. I couldn't agree with you more on in that regard. Now it's interesting you say this because I, I like the fact that you have these three up. Because mm -hmm. this is what I'm finding in the data that I'm running is that the closer your sights are to the bore, so like iron sights, yeah. they need to be zeroing about 10 yards to give them the longest sweet spot, meaning no hold over or hold under for the greatest yeah. amount of distance. Carry optics runs right about 15 yards. And PCC, I'm finding, is that 22, 23 to 25 yard zone. So yeah, the, the gonna, higher, the farther out you need to zero. Yeah. yeah, so my zero distance basically has me, except for the ultra close stuff, but like in your common yeah. engagement ranges of 10 yards or more, I'm going to be plus or minus one inch throughout the, the entire range of shooting that I'm going to do. So like I just, I, unless there's a super tight no shoot array or something like that, I don't have to think so much about that hold. I just know that it's going to hit a little higher, a little low based on the distance. But yeah, sweet spot is definitely important. And it's one thing to like put your data in a ballistic chart and see a, see a chart. It's another to actually go out and like, you know, very, you know, trust, but verify like the numbers are the numbers, but what's actively happening out of your gun is, is definitely way more important. Absolutely. Couldn't agree more. But uh, yeah, for my handguns, I'm kind of in, I think you, well, you mentioned 15 yards. I'm kind of more in that wheelhouse. 15 to 17 yards is kind of the ballpark of where most of my handguns with dots are zero. Yeah. And that's where I'm finding is, is the sweet spot. Like with, so with my carry optics gun, zero to 50 yards, it's, it's aim normal spot and pull the trigger. So yep. I don't, I don't have to. And that's what I was posting on Instagram was. I was trying to find that spot exactly because I don't want to have, that's one less thing I have to think about, which I, you said exactly what the whole reason I did it was so that I don't have to think that's one less thing. That's just, it's just normal. Just put the gun where yeah. it look at your spot. When the dot gets close, pull the trigger. You're good. Yeah. You, you, you cannot be a top level fast competitor in this sport. If you are having to actively think about everything that you're out there doing. Uh, it, yeah. The more things that you, the more things you know, we're 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 meat computers at the end of the day, right? So we have a finite amount of RAM space, and the more of that you can clear up for tasks that are actually really needed for it, the better success you're going to have. The fewer errors that you're going to make. If you're out there worried about where your trigger finger is and like how you're holding the gun while you're running and and stuff like that, that that's all computing space that you're eating up, and that's that's just going to eventually turn you into a mistake. Yeah, and not everybody's built the same. Not everybody has 64 yeah. gigabytes of RAM. Some of us only have eight. Yeah, 
<laughs> you got RAM and processing speed to contend with, yeah. right? So, so, yeah. So, like, you know, you, you got to work within, and that you got to work within the confines of what you got. You know, you got people out there. Yeah, you can drop ten splits on your gun. Great. How are those hits? And you know, if if your hits aren't there at ten splits, well, uh, fourteen splits are going to do you way better to get two alphas than than an alpha Charlie or an alpha Delta with tens, right? So, yeah, exactly. Uh, Got, got to work within your confines. And that's like anytime I'm helping somebody out with like stage planning or whatever, I'm like, look, this is why I'm doing, you know, this is what I'm doing. Uh, this is why I'm doing it. Here's the risks as I identify it. And like if one of these risks like sets off your spidey sense of, hey, I might mess that up. My plan probably ain't the plan for you. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, and, you know, Nil said it right. You know, he's like, um train your weaknesses shoot your strength so when you're going into that match shoot what you're strong at you know i, I always try to whether it's a local or a level or a, an area or a sectional or or nationals um you know i always try to plan my stage plan around my strengths so that Absolutely. it 100%. makes it so much easier so and and i am not a gm level shooter so i am not gonna now, what I do like to see is after I shoot, compare what my plan was to other people. But right. I come up with my plan. It's me. It's mine. It's unique to my to me. Yep. It's not always different because depends on, you know, am I, are we all forced to start the same place and end the same place? So they're all going to look similar. But, you know, there are mine. very few state. There are very few stages out there where the plan makes a huge difference. There are. There are definitely some where if you shoot the wrong way, you're costing yourself, you know, three, four seconds of time. But for the typical USPSA type stage, any plan that you can execute to perfection is better than one that that's not fluent for you. Right. So like people yeah. that, you know, one of the worst things you can do generally is to change your stage plan. There was a reason that was your stage plan to start because something about the flow or how something visually looked made the most sense to you. And, and with very few exceptions, that's that's how you should do it. And you know what? And here's a stage you and I both shot two years ago. So 2021 nationals mm -hmm. at Talladega. That was PCC and carry optics. Okay. Stage on the section three. I forget what exactly the what they the, called it. The, 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 the fun stuff. Yeah. So I think it was stage <laughs> 14. That was the one where you had to shoot weak hand for the last three targets. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, you so, ran up to the front left side there, or you had the option. It was uh, Right. Happened, but, so yeah. I shot right, ran all the way up front to the left, shot that, came back to the middle, and engaged mm -hmm. the last three there because weak hand is not my strength. And those were the closest sure. targets. One of them was a popper, so I only needed one shot at a – fairly close range so it was much easier but there's an example of you know some people shot right shot the middle and then shot those far targets all weekend but i was like if i do that i'm going to be there for six minutes so I, i'm gonna i'm gonna cut five and a half minutes off of that time and do it a different way so yeah, yeah, no, hundred percent. And then, and then, just like you got divisional type stuff, right? So, like for PCC, you know, it's not so easy to like sling that thing from one shoulder to the other. So, by shooting those front yeah. targets for me, uh, it gave you know I had some movement space that I could soak up that uh, that particular transition action, 
with. Yeah, so it g- gave me more yeah. time to like get the gun over on my shoulder. And if I got it there soon enough, you know, I, I could try to get crazy and like shoot some stuff on the move. Uh, I, at that point, I, I you know that that section of that particular match was like survive. So like try not to make mistakes in <laughs> all those stages. So I, I, I definitely I don't I don't I don't think I opted to do that. I think I just got to my spot and, and shot. But uh, uh, yeah, no, that's a definitely a great example. There were there, I think there was another stage. I don't know if it was that match or maybe the maybe it was last year's uh, nationals. But like there was one where you had an opportunity for poppers and you could either shoot it from the back far back right at distance or you could run up closer and shoot them through a port. And of course, most of the handgun guys opted to go to the port and close that distance and a lot of the carving and open shooters opted to shoot it from from further back but uh yeah you got to you got to look at your own personal strengths and weaknesses you got to look at uh, divisional differences like you know hopefully your stage walking buddy is shooting the same division as you uh and if they're not hopefully you guys can have a, a realistic conversation about you know what may be different between production and carry optics versus open or pcc uh, because it can make a huge, huge difference. You know, the best plan yes, for PCC usually ain't the best plan for production, you know? No, or even carry optics. I mean, because typically or, we're going to have a, a mag change or or distance on the targets, just like you said. I'm probably yes. not going to take that 35-yard shot. <laughs> I, I, I shoot with a lot of a lot of carry optics guys and like you know we'll be walking a stage and they'll be like what's the round count and I'm like I don't know dude I shoot PCC I don't have to do yeah. all that stuff it's one magazine like, it, that's it what it is it does bite me when I do jump back <laughs> and shoot you know, like <laughs> once I get out of uh, I got Air, the Area Five Championship coming up here shortly like once I'm out of that I'll spend the summer not traveling to majors and I'm just going to stay home and shoot more local matches and I will dabble in carry optics and open and limited or, you know, mm. whatever tickles my fancy on a particular week. And I do have to actually get back in the groove of counting, counting rounds and figuring out when to right. do a mag change. So what, what does your training look like, Jason? <laughs> uh, not very much. Most of my training is just by shooting <laughs> matches, uh, you know, with, okay. with, with uh, uh, a full work schedule, occasional work travel to, Two young kids in the house, a boy that's uh, j- just playing, you know, spring little league ball. Uh, my time is is at a minimum. So most of my training is focused around shooting local matches against known competitors. Um, you know, um, I, I was blessed here in the Atlanta market when I came up in, in USPSA. I had a lot of local uh, GM shooters, lots of local GM PCC shooters specifically. So um, being able to measure myself locally was something that was very easy to do. So I had a lot of shooters that I could gauge how I was progressing just, just through that. Um, about the only training that I do is like, uh, maybe, maybe if I see a match where there's something unique, like last year's PCC, uh, was it last year's? It was two years ago. No, it was actually two years ago. The one, uh, with, uh, it was the PCC carry optics match where they had that, uh, there was like the standard stage where you had to do a weak hand reload. Yes. Yeah, yeah, so like who practices for that, right? So like I did go, I went out to the range, uh, you know, maybe a week or two before that match and did some reps on that. But unless there's some unique physical challenge, I don't do I do not do a lot of training, honestly. Uh, it's one of the things I like about the carbine shooting is, uh, you know, having such a busy personal life, I can put down that carbine for two or three weeks and those skills don't perish quite as quickly as a handgun does. You know, like okay. any day that you're not dry firing or at least holding your gun to manipulate or whatever, like your body just sort of starts forgetting what it was supposed to do. Um, so big reason of why I shoot a lot of carbine right now. Number one, it's just it's the division I had the most fun in, which is, you know, at the end of the day, this is a recreational sport. So it's important. But uh, being able to be competitive while not being able to shoot the gun as much as I'd like to is also one of the other 
big factors. So do you do you do more dry fire then? I mean, do you even get in some dry? No. no <laughs> okay. No. Like if uh, you know, like when I got when I switched from the EOTech to the Vortex, it was a different. You know, I went from an absolute co-witness to a lower one third. All right, I'm going to do some dry fire reps for that. I do have some like mini Ipsic targets and stuff like that that uh, I will do the occasional dry fire for. Um, I, I did spend some dry fire effort on reloading uh, a couple of years ago because that's a huge deficiency for a lot of PCC shooters is the ability to reload the gun on the clock. And while it's not a challenge you're often posed with, it is one that you usually have to do if you do want to rank up through classifiers. Um, you know, you're going to come across quite a few classifiers, especially the older ones that have mandatory reloads. Um, so I, I use the, the, you mentioned this earlier, like, you know, you take a, uh, a, uh, you know, something you're not good at a disadvantage and you turn it into a, you know, take a, take a, a weakness and turn it into a strength. And that's exactly what I've done with reloading, uh, the carbine. So like reloads are not, a, not a problem. I'm probably one of the rare PCC shooters where I I'd give up the big stick in a heartbeat if we could shoot major power factor through these guns and actually get a scoring advantage for that. Um, so give me, give me 170 mags and 165 power factor for the PCC and I'd be all about it. Oh, interesting. Okay. Hmm. I don't. I don't. I don't know that there's a lot of guys on that island with me, but uh, I, I don't know. think I've ever heard that before. Yeah. So that's very interesting. I mean, that would kind of change the entire complexion, but that's pretty cool. I like that. I mean, you, you look at it. I mean, I kind of look at PCC as like open, minor, long. Uh, you know, the rules same base, basically apply. So like shooting PCC major with 170 mags, it's going to be just like open. The majority of the stages, you're still not going to have to do a reload on, but you'll, you know, at a 10 stage match, you'll have three or four stages where you got to got to work in a reload. So it's not going to change the game dramatically, but, uh, you know, it's going to allow me to go even faster, take an occasional Charlie, um, and it doesn't hurt as bad. So yeah, I'm all about that. And I feel like ballistically um, and number wise, I mean, how hard would it be to do a 150 grain bullet with in a nine mil and reach 165? I don't feel like that oh, would know, be it's, that it's, difficult. It, 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 it's not hard at all. And in, in a, a yeah. not, I haven't tried it in my Da Vinci, but like one of my earliest carbine builds, I used like a ballistic advantage. It was a full 16 inch barrel and shooting like 124 grain blazer brass. It was like right at 160 power factor with factory ammunition. So it's unique, enough, it, it's unique enough that you would still have to load for it. But... Um, most PCCs, like for people that are just shooting off the shelf pistol ammo, like they're flirting with major already. Well, but what, what, like plus P ammo then would reach. Oh, plus P would, plus, plus P would yeah. definitely, definitely do it for sure. So, yeah, I mean, you definitely, there are some off the rack, uh, projectile bullet combinations that would get you to major, but, uh, Pretty quick. Yeah, your, sta your, your, your standard 124 stuff is, is really, really close in a lot of guns. Yeah. And uh, I know you're a brass monkey guy. Don't they make yeah. like a 137 grain? Uh, he does all the way up to 150. So like man, right. the number of nine, the number of nine mil profiles he has is astounding. How he keeps up with the production is is beyond me. But uh, yeah, I, I prefer light bullets in the carbine personally. So I shoot 115s. But yeah, he does all the way up to 150 grain projectile. But one, uh, yeah. 130, he does a, he does a, the 115. He does a 125 round nose, a 127 conical, 135 yep. round nose. 147 flat point and then yeah like a 150 round nose i think yeah i mean it, it would be very easy and we're just talking brass monkey here mm -hmm. um but i mean you know a lot of bullet manufacturers same way but it yep. wouldn't be hard to take whatever profile you prefer whatever grain you prefer and just yep. change the recipe a little bit and boom there you are 
And yeah. I can't yeah. I can't imagine that they couldn't handle the little oh, no, additional. Oh no, the, these. I mean, most of these guns. The the I, I run a lighter profile barrel in my Da Vinci personally, but like a standard carbine profile for nine millimeter. Uh, like uh, it, there's a, there was an image that floated around years ago where people were having problems with reloading for the carbines. They were using like heavy bullets and super fast powders, and they were having lots of like squibs. And JP did like a cutaway barrel of theirs where it had like sixteen squibs just just pounded one after the other, and like the exterior of the barrel was fine. Because, you know, we're not talking wow. 3,000 feet per second projectiles here. We're talking, you know, it's all relatively slow stuff. And the barrel material right. is very thick in comparison to a, to a pistol. So, no, it could definitely handle major. Okay. Yep. Now, what is your um, ultimate goal in practical shooting? So, the, the, the goal that I've really the only one I've got is, is like just participation. So like I, I try to shoot on average of 40 to 50 matches a year, locals and majors. Uh, I'm shooting 10 majors this year, which uh, I'm on track to do that. I've got three, three or four already in the bag this year, three. Yeah. So I shot uh, South Carolina dragons cup and Aaron just came off area six. Uh, so 10 majors will be the ultimate goal. Um, top 10 at nationals is kind of, kind of my goal. Um, okay. I, I flirted with it for the, you know, my first, PCC Nationals, I was like 60, 67, 68, something like that. And the last two years, I've been in the top 20. So I was 18th in uh, 2021. I was 16th last year. And uh, yeah, just a couple of like small little errors kept me out of the top 10. Mm. Uh, so so, so it's there. E even with the limited training that I do, um, it, it, top 10 is definitely a possibility for me. And that's Yeah, that's you're knocking the at the door there. Yeah. For sure. Now, what is your um, what does your make ready look like? So that's a great question. Wow, that's that's not what I've been posted <laughs> before. So the so I, I actually the make ready starts even before the make ready, right? So like when I'm the uh, on deck shooter or the in the hole shooter, I will kind of separate myself from the group a little bit, work on like breathing just to control heart rate and relax. Uh, I will do, I'll, I will use the being in the hole shooter and the on deck shooter. I will use that buzzer to sort of visually go through the stage in my head. So I'll be kind of off wherever I'm at with my eyes closed buzzer goes off. And then I'm just kind of like bobbing and weaving my way through the stage with my eyes closed. So that's the, that's the pre make ready, make ready, uh, get up to the, get up to the bay step in uh, again do a couple of like bre deep breathing things just to control heart rate because that's the, the first thing that'll that'll throw your stage off is just you know having having too much adrenaline you're going through here or the heart rate beating too too much uh, so just just to chill out a little bit relax and then i will do kind of that same thing i will do one more eyes closed sort of visual walkthrough bobbing and weaving as you'll often see people do um, turn on my i do like a insta 360 camera turn on that camera i will um then load and make ready, get in the start position, come up one sight picture, check the dot, check the dot always against the brightest target on the bay, depending upon your sun presentation. So like if you got a, a white popper, especially, uh, that's a, that's a mm. pretty common mistake is you don't set your dot intensity bright enough. And if you get a popper that's like got blazing sun on it, it may show up on cardboard, but it's going to vanish hundred percent when you get to that white popper. So make sure your dots where it needs to be. And, uh, that's pretty much it. I'll do like two, two or three reps of coming off the belt to uh, just press out the gun, especially if there's like a closed target that I'm going to be shooting directly off the marks. And uh, if 
that's kind of it. It's a lot of just like visual and mental drilling of the stage into my head so that it becomes part of that subconscious and I'm not actively having to think about my positions and what I'm shooting and what I should be seeing when I get from spot to spot to spot. I like it. Yeah. Well, Jason, that's, those are all the topics I wanted to cover. Was there anything that you wanted to touch on or we didn't touch on enough? No, I think it's pretty good. Honestly, you man, a lot of uh, these podcasts are just like conversational and just uh, which this one definitely was as well. But you had a couple of good pointed questions that uh, steered the conversation. So no, I'm I'm really pleased with with what yeah, we've done here. I'm all about interrogation. Yeah, we talked about paintball more, <laughs> way more than I thought I would for sure, hundred percent. Well, and but I think there's a lot to take away from that. You know what I mean? Like I felt like it still yeah, pertains yeah. to what this. Yeah, there's, there's yeah yeah there's not a lot of sports that are like a, a parallel to what we do, and that's probably the closest one. Uh, and it's just a weird environment where like the dollar of the the dollar spend of the industry in the shooting sports is way higher than paintball, but like the manufacturer participation is is way higher over there, even though they're fighting for less dollars over there. So. Yeah, I mean, even we can figure even, it out and elevate our elevate yeah. our matches. Yeah, and even airsoft, it's being huge. People are now starting to play that in malls. They can do it indoors and yep. and have sensors and all kinds of stuff. So I think there are other things outside of actual firearms that are very yep. related that you know we can learn from. So I, I think I, it's very pertinent. I, I, absolutely. Getting getting out of uh, our, our little shooting bubble and just seeing other other sports, you know, competitive cornhole, paintball, golf, you name it. Like there are ideas we can take from all of these things to make our match experiences better. You know, the, the match itself, the actual pulling of the trigger and stage design, I think that's fairly dialed in across the board. Uh, you know, I haven't shot a lot of matches where I walk away and I'm just like, man, what were they thinking? This was the, the most boring match or the, the, the match difficulty was way too high for the typical competitor. Like I just don't see a ton of that. Uh, we just need to put on a better show and make it more appealing to the masses that when they walk, you know, when they pay their $150 state match fee, like they feel like it wasn't just a local match where they slap some banners on the wall, you know? And a few more stages. And yeah. a few more stages. Yeah. Yeah. So we've got to figure, figure that part out. And uh, that that's where we're going to, you know, growth is not the problem. We get new shooters all the time. We got to figure out a way to retain them and make them uh, more interested for the long term. Agree. Well, if you're up for it, we should run this back after PCC Nationals. Yeah, yeah, we can uh, have a debrief after Nationals and see, yeah. uh, see how I did on uh, reaching my goal. And Absolutely. How the trade show was. And talk about how the trade show was. There you go. I like it. All right, well, thanks for coming on, Jason. I appreciate it. Yeah, man. Um, and just uh, obviously, I've got a couple uh, couple guys to talk about here. Uh, you know, if you're into the PCC sure. world, I definitely definitely recommend uh, uh, if you're in the market for a PCC to check out DaVinci uh, Machining. Their DG9 uh, uh, PCC is one I've been shooting here for about a year and a half. Uh, they are big supporters of uh, USPSA shooting, especially they sponsor tons of matches and and do lots of uh, donations. And so, you know, like if you are a match or even want a match, you know, they, they donate receiver sets and things like that. So I'm big on supporting those that support what we do. Um, and all, all of the manufacturers uh, that I work with for the most part are heavily involved. You know, Jason at Brass Monkey's doing it on a regional level. He's always trying to figure out a way to get, get bigger into it. 
Um, but, you know, he's sponsoring lots of state matches in the area. Uh, company Breek Arms, I, I rep their charging handle. I've run that thing for about two and a half years. Um, they are, you know, obviously on the AR platform, they are more centric around the defensive sports, but, uh, or not sports, but like just defensive shooting in general. But uh, they're, they're looking to get more involved and they're trying to build a shooting team that's not just carbine focused. So, um, Big, uh, big support for those guys. I'm a big, big fan, and they're, you know, they're made here in the USA. Not a lot of charging handles are made that way. You get a lot of, uh, you know, you might get assembly in the USA from foreign components and all that jazz, but they're making all their stuff up there in Minnesota. So, Da Vinci machining, brass monkey bullets. I did it the wrong way again. And uh, <laughs> arms are, are huge, huge supporters of mine. And, well, Jason, uh, what I'll do then is for you and your sponsors, I'll put a link in the show notes okay. to your link tree. Awesome. So they, I appreciate that. they can find everything at one time, one spot. Yeah, man. And if anybody has questions about carbines, PCCs, bullets, reloading, anything like that, definitely reach out to me on uh, Instagram and stuff like that. I'm happy to chat and uh, help people progress in the sport and share the knowledge that I have. You know, you might not be able to come shoot a match with me and steal that information directly, but I'm happy to, to chat it out with anybody on the, on the DMs there if you got questions or anything like that. Awesome. Well, again, thanks for coming on, and we will do this again yeah. in the fall. Awesome. Thanks so much, Dave. Until next time. Don't be a little bitch. Yeah.